Welcome back to Womance's public access Jane Eyre read-along. I am your even chapter reader, Isabeau. And I'm your odd chapter reader, Morgan. Morgan, if you'd be so kind as to catch us up on what happened in our very last chapter. Sure thing. So uh, t- the month of courtship was wasted <laughs> per Jane. Um but Rochester has been hard at work getting all of his ducks in a row for a very long honeymoon spent very far away from Thornfield, starting off in London. Uh, but Jane tells us in Chapter 25 that she has certain apprehensions about her wifely duties, naming la- namely labeling her luggage as Mrs. Rochester. And she's not going to do it until after the wedding. She feels too fragile. So Rochester returns home after taking care of business, TCB, on a stormy night. And Jane shares with him a story. Uh, She had a nightmare where she was clawing her way with a child around her neck through the ruins of Thornfield Hall. And when she awoke, she saw a woman going through her wardrobe who ripped her veil. And the woman had, she could see her like black veins through her skin and she had bloodshot eyes. Um... And Rochester said, oh, I think you saw a ghost. And Jane was like, I don't think so. Because when I woke up, the veil was actually ripped and stomped on. She like fainted from fear when the ghoulish figure blew out the candle right under her eyes. And woke up the next morning and there was evidence that this was not a dream. This is all real. This is all really happening. Uh, To quote Rosemary's baby. And he was like, you're right. It wasn't a dream. It was Grace Poole. I'll tell you in a year and a day why I keep that weirdo around uh, after we're married. And But then he's like very insistent that she go and sleep with Adele and Sophie in the nursery that night and not sleep alone. Yep. And thus concludes, thus concludes. the wedding eve. Here we begin. Chapter 26. Sophie came at seven to dress me. She was very long indeed in accomplishing her task, so long that Mr. Rochester, grown, I suppose, impatient of my delay, sent up to ask why I did not come. She was just fastening my veil, the plain square of blonde after all, to my hair with a brooch. I hurried from under her hands as soon as I could. Stop, she cried in French. Look at yourself in the mirror. You have not taken one peep. So I turned at the door, saw a robed and veiled figure, so unlike my usual self that it seemed almost the image of a stranger. Jane, called a voice, and I hastened down. I was received at the foot of the stairs by Mr. Rochester. Remember, she thought of her wedding clothes as very ghostly. Mm -hmm. Also, this is a very hurried, she's all that moment, like coming down the stairs to her Freddie Prince Jr. (laughs) (laughs) Lingerer, he said. My brain is on fire with impatience, and you tarry so long. He took me into the dining room, surveyed me keenly all over, pronounced me fair as a lily and not only the pride of his life, but the desire of his eyes. And then telling me he would give me but 10 minutes to eat some breakfast, he rang the bell. One of his lately hired servants, a footman, answered it. Is John getting the carriage ready? Yes, sir. Is the luggage brought down? They are bringing it down now, sir. Go you to the church. See if Mr. Wood, the clergyman, and the clerk are there. Return and tell me. The church, as the reader knows, was but just beyond the gates. The footman soon returned. Mr. Wood is in the vestry, sir, putting on his surplice. And the carriage? 
the horses are harnessing. We shall not want it to go to church, but it must be ready the moment we return. All the boxes and luggage arranged and strapped on, and the coachman in his seat. Yes, sir. Jane, are you ready? I rose. There were no groomsmen, no bridesmaids, no relatives to wait for or marshal, none but Mr. Rochester and I. Mrs. Fairfax stood in the hall as we passed. I would fain have spoken to her, but my hand was held by a grasp of iron. I was hurried along by a stride I could hardly follow, and to look at Mr. Rochester's face was to feel that not a second of delay would be tolerated for any purpose. I wonder what other bridegroom ever looked as he did, so bent up to a purpose, so grimly resolute, or who, under such steadfast brows, ever revealed such flaming and flashing eyes. What's going on? <laughs> I love that like Adele can't even go to her dad's wedding. <laughs> I know. I know not whether the day was fair or foul. In descending the drive, I gazed neither on sky nor earth. My heart was, my heart was with my eyes, and both seemed migrated into Mister Rochester's frame. I wanted to see the invisible thing on which, as we went along, he appeared to fasten a glance fierce and fell. I wanted to feel the thoughts whose force he seemed breasting and resisting. At the churchyard wicket, he stopped. He discovered I was quite out of breath. Am I cruel in my love, he said. Delay an instant. Lean on me, Jane. And now I can recall the picture of the gray old house of God rising calm before me, of a rook wheeling round the steeple, of a ruddy morning sky beyond. I remember something, too, of the green grave mounds, and I have not forgotten either two figures of strangers straying amongst the low hillcocks and reading the mementos graven on the few mossy headstones. I noticed them because, as they saw us, they passed round the back of the church, and I doubted not that they were going to enter by the side door and witness the ceremony. By Mr. Rochester they were not observed. He was earnestly looking at my face, from which the blood had, I dare say, momentarily fled, for I felt my forehead dewy, my cheeks and lips cold. When I rallied, which I soon did, he walked gently with me up the path to the porch. We entered the quiet and humble temple. The priest waited in his white surplice at the lowly altar, the clerk beside him. All was still. Two shadows only moved in a remote corner. My conjecture had been correct. The strangers had slipped in before us, and they now stood by the vault of the Rochesters, their backs toward us, viewing through the rails the old, time-stained marble tomb, where a kneeling angel guarded the remains of Dammer de Rochester, slain at Marston Moor in the time of the Civil Wars, and of Elizabeth, his wife. Our place was taken at the communion rails. Hearing a cautious step behind me, I glanced over my shoulder. One of the strangers, a gentleman evidently, was advancing up the chancel. The service began. The explanation of the intent to matrimony was gone through, and then the clergyman came a step further forward and bending slightly towards Mr. Rochester went on. I require and charge you both, as ye will answer at the dreadful day of judgment, when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed, that if either of you know of any impediment why ye may not lawfully be joined together in matrimony, ye do, ye do now confess it. For be ye well assured that so many as are coupled together otherwise than God's word doth allow are not joined together by God, neither is matrimony lawful. He paused, as the custom is, 
When is the pause after that sentence ever broken by reply? Not perhaps once in a hundred years. And the clergyman, who had not lifted his eyes from his book, had held his breath but for a moment when was proceeding. His hand was already stretched toward Mr. Rochester as his lips unclosed to ask, Wilt thou have this woman for thy wedded wife? When a distinct and near voice said, The marriage cannot go on! I declare the existence of an impediment! The clergyman looked up at the speaker and stood mute. The clerk did the same. Mr. Rochester moved slightly, as if an earthquake had rolled under his feet, taking a firmer footing, and not turning his head or eyes, he said, proceed. Profound silence fell when he had uttered that word with deep but low intonation. Presently, Mr. Wood said, I cannot proceed without some investigation into what has been asserted (laughs) and evidence of its truth or falsehood. The ceremony is quite broken off, subjoined the voice behind us. I am in a condition to prove my allegation. An insuperable impediment to this marriage exists, Mr. Rochester heard, but he did not. He stood stubborn and rigid, making no movement but to possess himself of my hand. What a hot and strong grasp he had. And now, like quarried marble, was his pale, firm, massive front at this moment. How his eye shone, still watchful and yet wild beneath. I, we have to laugh because this is so uncomfortable. <laughs> I love it so much. Oh. Mr. Wood seemed at a loss. What is the nature of the impediment, he asked? Perhaps it may be got over, explained away. Hardly was the answer. I have called it insuperable, super insuperable, and I speak advisedly. The speaker came forward and leaned on the rails. He continued, uttering each word distinctly, calmly, steadily, but not loudly. It simply consists in the existence of a previous marriage. Mr. Rochester has a wife now living. My nerves vibrated to those low-spoken words as they had never vibrated to thunder. My blood felt their subtle violence as it had never felt frost or fire, but I was collected and in no danger of swooning. I looked at Mr. Rochester. I made him look at me. His whole face was colorless rock. His eye was both spark and flint. He disavowed nothing. He seemed as if he would defy all things. Without speaking, without smiling, without seeming to recognize in me a human being, he only twined my waist with his arm and riveted me to his side. Who are you? He asked of the intruder. My name is Briggs, a solicitor of blank street london and you would thrust on me a wife i would remind you of your lady's existence sir which the law recognizes if you do not favor me with an account (laughs) of her with her name her parentage her place of abode certainly mr briggs calmly took a paper from his pocket and read out the sort of official nasal voice i affirm and can prove that on the 20th of october a.d blank a date of 15 years back Edward Fairfax Rochester of Thornfield Hall in the country of Blank and of Fairdine Manor in Blankshire, England, was married to my sister, Bertha Antoinetta Mason, daughter of Jonas Mason, merchant of the Antoinetta and his wife, a Creole, at church, at Blank Church, Spanish Town, Jamaica. The record of the marriage will be found in the register of that church. A copy of it is now in my possession, signed Richard Mason. That if a genuine document may prove I have been married, but it does not prove that that woman mentioned therein as my wife is still living. 
She was living three months ago, returned the lawyer. How do you know? I have a witness to the fact whose testimony even you, sir, will scarcely controvert. Produce him or go to hell. I will produce him first. He is on the spot. Mr. Mason, have the goodness to step forward. Mr. Rochester, on hearing the name, set his teeth. He experienced... Damn it! I know. He's like, dicky. Dick. Mr. Rochester, on hearing the name, set his teeth. He experienced, too, a sort of strong, convulsive quiver. Near to him as I was, I felt the spasmodic movement of fury or despair run through his frame. The second stranger, who had hitherto lingered in the background, now drew near. A pale face looked over the solicitor's shoulder. Yes, it was Mason himself. Mr. Rochester turned and glared at him. His eye, as I have said, was a black eye. It had now a tawny, nay a bloody light in its gloom, and his face flushed, olive cheek and hueless forehead received a glow, as from spreading, ascending heart fire, and he stirred, lifted his strong arm, he could have struck Mason, dashed him on the church floor, shocked by ruthless blow, the breath from his body, but Mason shrank away and cried faintly, Good God! Contempt fell cool on Mr. Rochester. His passion died as if a blight had shriveled it up. He only asked, What have you to say? An inaudible reply escaped Mason's white lips. The devil is in it if you cannot answer distinctly. I again demand, what have you to say? Sir, sir, interrupted the clergyman, do not forget you are in a sacred place. Then addressing Mason, he inquired gently, Are you aware, sir, whether or not this gentleman's wife is still living? Courage, urged the lawyer. Speak out. She is now living at Thornfield Hall, said Mason in more articulate tones. I saw her there last April. I am her brother. At Thornfield Hall, ejaculated the clergyman. Impossible. I am an old resident in this neighborhood, sir, and I have never heard of a Mrs. Rochester at Thornfield Hall. So grim smile contort Mr. Rochester's lip, and he muttered, No, by God, I took care that none should hear of it or of her under that name. He mused for ten minutes. He held counsel with himself. He formed his resolve and announced it. Enough. Ten minutes! And everybody waits. They just, like, all wait. <laughs> Enough. All shall bolt out at once like the bullet from the barrel. Wood, close your book and take off your surplice. John, Green, to the clerk, leave the church. There will be no wedding today. The man obeyed. Mr. Rochester continued heartily and recklessly. Bigamy is an ugly word. I meant, however, to be a bigamist, but fate without has outmaneuvered me, or providence has checked me, perhaps the last. I am little better than a devil at this moment, and, as my pastor there would tell me, deserve no doubt the sternest judgments of God, even to the quenchless fire and deathless worm. Gentlemen, my plan is broken up. What this lawyer and his clients say is true. I have been married, and the woman to whom I was married lives. You say you never heard of a Mrs. Rochester at your house up yonderwood, but I dare say you have many a time inclined your ear to gossip about the mysterious lunatic there under the watch of watch and ward. Some have whispered to you that she is my bastard half-sister, some my cast-off mistress. I now inform you that she is my wife, whom I married fifteen years ago, Bertha Mason by name, sister of this resolute personage, who is now with his quivering limbs and white cheeks showing you what a stout heart men may bear. Cheer up, Dick! Never fear me. I'd almost as soon strike a woman as you. 
Bertha Mason is mad, and she came of a mad family, idiots and maniacs through three generations. Her mother, the Creole, was both a mad woman and a drunkard, as I found out after I had wed the daughter, for they were silent on family secrets before. Bertha, like a dutiful child, copied her parent in both points. I had a charming partner, pure, wise, modest. You can fancy I was a happy man. I went through rich scenes. Oh, my experience has been heavenly. If you only knew it, but I owe you no further explanation. Briggs, Wood, Mason, I invite you all to come up to the house and visit Mrs. Poole's patient and my wife. You shall see what sort of a being I was cheated into espousing and judge whether or not I had a right to break the compact and seek sympathy with something at least human. This girl, he continued looking at me, knew no more than you would of the dis of the disgusting secret she thought all was fair and legal and never dreamt she was going to be entrapped into a feigned union with a defrauded wretch already bound to a bad mad and embruted partner come all of you follow i like how he's immediately like jane is a mermaid jane is a fairy jane is a witch and now jane is at least human yep in comparison to his wife and uh just goes to show people have a type <laughs> people have patterns it's true do you believe that mr rochester didn't know about bertha's uh tendencies before he married her no i think that's probably part of what attracted him to her right like yeah, absolutely a right fiery and fun human being to hang out with yeah. Well, and just recall his like description of her veiled as a description of that other lady, right? Whenever he's talking to Jane next to the tree. Mm -hmm. How dare he? <laughs> Which is all to say, how dare he? Yeah. Also, poor Dick, just trying to be a good brother. And good for Dick. He really did well up in Rochester. I would not as soon hit you as I would hit a woman. Fucking low blow. It's like Dick just showed up to your wedding and told you what's what. Yeah. All right. Like, you thought you got away with it because you gave him a Valium. <laughs> and sent him on his way. And lo and behold, you were wrong. Lo and behold, Dick does have the heart of a strong and courageous brother. Once again, Dick is handsome and nice. Yep. Good job. And brave. Good job, Dickie. Still holding me fast, he left the church. The three gentlemen came after. At the front door of the hall, we found the carriage. Take it back to the coach house, John, said Mr. Rochester. <laughs> Coolly. <laughs> Let me do that one again. <laughs> he said coolly. <laughs> cool, he said, as if he were a cucumber. <laughs> I think you can see how I envision this reading. First draft, only draft. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was not the author's intent. <laughs> Take it back to the coach house, John, said Mr. Rochester coolly. It will not be wanted today. <laughs> He's so dramatic as Mr. Rochester. That's why I read it like that. Even it won't be wanted today. He's such a drama queen. At our entrance, Mrs. Fairfax, Adele, Sophie, Leah advanced to meet and greet us. To the right about every soul, cried the master. Away with your congratulations. Who wants them? Not I. They're 15 years too late. 
He passed on, ascended the stairs, still holding my hand and still beckoning the gentlemen to follow him, which they did. We mounted the first staircase, passed up the gallery, proceeded to the third story, the low back door opened by Mr. Rochester's master key, admitted us to the tapestried room with its great bed and its uh, pictorial cabinet. You know this place, Mason, said our guide. She bit and stabbed you here. He lifted the hangings from the wall and covering the second door. This too he opened in a room without a window. There burnt a fire guarded by a high and strong fender and a lamp suspended from the ceiling by a chain. Grace Poole bent over the fire, apparently cooking something in a saucepan. In the deep shade at the further end of the room, a figure ran backwards and forwards. What it was, whether beast or human being, one could not at first sight tell. It groveled seemingly on all fours, snatched and growled like some strange wild animal. But it was covered with clothing and a quantity of dark grizzled hair, wild as a mane, hid its, hid its head and face. Good morrow, Mrs. Peel, said Mr. Rochester. How are you and how is your charge today? We're tolerable, sir, th I thank you, replied Grace, lifting the boiling mess carefully on to the hob. Rather snappish, but not rageous. A fierce cry seemed to give the lie to her favorable report. The clothed hyena rose up and stood tall on its hind feet. This is actually difficult to read. <laughs> ah, sir, she sees you, exclaimed Grace. You'd better not stay. Only a few moments, Grace. You must allow me a few moments. Take care then, sir. For God's sake, take care. The maniac bellowed. She parted her shaggy locks from her visage and gazed wildly at her visitors. I recognize well that purple face, those blotted features. Mrs. Poole advanced. Keep out of the way, said Mr. Rochester, thrusting her aside. She has no knife now, I suppose. And I'm on my guard. One never knows what she has, sir. She is so cunning. It is not in mortal discretion to fathom her craft. We'd better leave her, whispered Mason. Go to the devil, was his brother-in-law's recommendation. Where? cried Grace. The three gentlemen retreated simultaneously. Mr. Rochester flung me behind him. The lunatic sprang and grappled his throat viciously and laid her teeth to his cheek. They struggled. She was a big woman in stature, almost equaling her husband, and corpulent besides. She showed a virile force in the contest. More than once she almost throttled him, athletic as he was. He could have settled her with a well-planted blow, but he would not strike. He would only wrestle. At last, he mastered her arms. Grace Poole gave him a cord, and he pinioned them behind her. With more rope, which was at hand, he bound her to a chair. The operation was performed amidst the fiercest yells and the most convulsive plunges. Mr. Rochester then turned to the spectators. He looked at them with a smile both acrid and desolate. "'That is my wife,' said he. "'Such is the sole conjugal embrace I am ever to know. Such are the endearments which are to solace.'" my leisure hours and this is what i wish to have laying his hand on my shoulder this young girl who stands so grave and quiet at the mouth of hell looking collectedly at the gambols of a demon i wanted her just as a change after that fierce rago rag out it is the spelling of the word ragu ragu but i think it's probably i don't even have a note for this one i don't either Okay. Like we're supposed to know. Okay. <laughs> After that fierce rag out, Wood and Briggs, look at the difference. Compare these clear eyes with the red balls yonder, this face with that mask, this form with that bulk. Then judge me, priest of the gospel and man of the law, and remember, with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged. Off with you now. I must shut up my prize. We all withdrew. 
Mr. Rochester stayed a moment behind us to give some further order to Grace Poole. The solicitor addressed me as he descended the stair. You, madam, said he, are cleared of all blame. Your uncle will be glad to hear it, if indeed he should be still living when Mr. Mason returns to Madeira. My uncle? What of him? Do you know him? Mr. Mason does. Mr. Eyre has been the Funchal correspondent of his house for some years. Well, <laughs> when your uncle received your letter intimating the contemplated union between yourself and Mr. Rochester and Mr. Mason, who is staying at Madeira to recruit his health, recruit his health on his way back to Jamaica happened to be with him. Mr. Eyre mentioned the intelligence, for he knew that my client here was acquainted with a gentleman of the name Rochester. Mr. Mason, astonished and distressed, as you may suppose, revealed the real state of matters. Your uncle, I am sorry to say, is now in a sickbed, from which, considering the nature of his disease, decline, and the stage it has reached, it is unlikely he will ever rise. He could not then hasten to England himself to extricate you from the snare into which you had fallen, but he implored Mr. Mason to lose no time in taking steps to prevent the false marriage. He referred him to me for assistance. I used all dispatch and am thankful I was not too late, as you doubtless must be also. Were I not morally certain that your uncle will be dead ere you reach Madeira, I would advise you to accompany Mr. Mason back, but as it is, I think you had better remain in England till you can hear further, either from or of Mr. Eyre. Have we anything else to stay for? He inquired Mr. Mason. No, no. Let us be gone, was the anxious reply. Without waiting to take leave of Mr. Rochester, they made exit to the at the hall door. The clergyman stayed to exchange a few sentences, either of admission or reproof, with his haughty parishioner. This duty done, he too departed. I don't know that I like that Dickie leaves. Well, what else is Dickie going to do? It's true. It's just like, I don't know. I heard him go as I stood at the half-open door of my own room, to which I had now withdrawn. The house cleared. I shut myself in, fastened the bolt that none might intrude, and proceeded not to weep, not to mourn. I was yet too calm for that, but mechanically to take off the wedding dress and replace it by the stuff gown I had worn yesterday, as I thought for the last time. I then sat down. I felt weak and tired. I leaned my arms on a table, my head dropped on them and now i thought till now i had only heard and seen moved followed up and down where i was led or dragged watched event rush on event disclosure upon beyond disclosure open beyond disclosure but now i thought the morning had been a quiet morning enough all except the brief scene with the lunatic the transaction in the church had not been noisy. There was no explosion of passion, no loud altercation, no dispute, no defiance or challenge, no tears, no sobs. Few words had been spoken, a calmly pronounced objection to the marriage made, some stern, short questions put by Mr. Rochester, answers, explanations given, evidence deduced, an open admission of the truth had been uttered by my master, then the living proof had, had been seen, the intruders were gone, and all was over. I was in my room, as usual, just myself, without obvious change. Nothing had smitten me, or scathed me, or maimed me. And yet, where was the Jane Eyre of yesterday? Where was her life? Where were her prospects? Jane Eyre, who had been an ardent, expectant woman, almost a bride, was a cold, solitary girl again. Her life was pale, her prospects were desolate. A Christmas frost had come out at midsummer. A white December storm had whirled over June. Ice glazed the ripe apples 
drifts crushed the blowing roses. On hayfield and cornfield lay a frozen shroud. Lanes which last night blushed full of flowers today were pathless with untrodden snow, and the woods which twelve hours since waved leafy and fragrant as graves between the tropics now spread waste wild and white as pine forests in wintry Norway. My hopes were all dead, struck with a subtle doom, such as, in one night, fell in all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. I looked on my own cherished wishes, yesterday so blooming and glowing. They lay stark, chill, livid corpses that could, not that could never revive. I looked at my love, that feeling which was my master's, which he had created. It shivered in my heart, like a suffering child in a cold cradle. Sickness and anguish had seized it. It could not seek Mr. Rochester's arms. It could not derive warmth from his breast. Oh, never more could it turn to him, for faith was blighted, confidence destroyed. Mr. Rochester was not to me what he had been, for he was not what I had thought him. I would not ascribe vice to him. I would not say he had betrayed me, but the attribute of stainless truth was gone from his idea, and from his presence I must go. That I perceived well. When, how, whither, I could not yet discern, but he himself, I doubted not, would hurry me from Thornfield. Real affection, it seemed, he could not have for me. It had been only fitful passion. That was balked. He would want me no more. I should fear. Even to cross his path now, my view must be hateful to him. Oh, how blind had been my eyes, how weak my conduct. My eyes were covered and closed. Eddying darkness seemed to swim around me, and reflection came in as black and confused a flow. Self-abandoned, relaxed, and effortless, I seemed to have laid me down in the dried-up bed of a great river. I heard a flood loosened in remote mountains, and felt the torrent come. To rise, I had no will. To flee, I had no strength. I lay faint, longing to be dead. One idea only still throbbed lifelike within me, a remembrance of God. It begot an unuttered prayer. These words went wandering up and down in my rayless mind, as something that should be whispered, but no energy was found to express them. Be not far from me, for trouble is near. There is none to help. It was near, and as I lifted no petition to heaven to avert it, as I had neither joined my hands, nor bent my knees, nor moved my lips, it came, in full heavy swing, the torrent poured over me, the whole consciousness of my life lorn, my love lost, my hope quenched, my faith death-struck, swayed full and mighty above me in one sullen mass. That bitter hour cannot be described. In truth, the waters came into my soul. I sank in deep mire. I felt no standing. I came into deep waters. The floods overflowed me. <laughs> Bright and cheery little chapter. What do what what can we say? Um, there's so much care taken to position her as oppositional to Jane by Rochester, and I wonder if the book really believes that. I don't think it does, and the reason why I 
put that forward is everything that we've been discussing, right? Mm-hmm. Not only is Bertha Mason also otherworldly and that oppositional, right, that she's this demon creature and she has a mask, not a face, but Jane too is otherworldly. And mm-hmm. it doesn't seem to – and Rochester himself is often described as otherworldly. So I'm not sure that any of these characters are truly oppositional so much as they are all shades of one another. Mm-hmm. And that their truest representation is that they rage against the confines of a very strict and unhelpful society. I think it's interesting how – after the lawyer and the clergyman and Dickie leave, Jane says the intruders departed. Like, those three are the ones who have encroached, right? And I think that's so telling um, that they are framed as the intruders. Like, in Thornfield Hall, the people who belong there, Bertha is definitely, like, the most, like, aggressive presence, right, could be understood as, like, the most intrusive idea in the chapter. Or she should be, but she's not the one who's framed as an intruder. Mm -hmm. And I think that's telling. Although I will say the description of her by Rochester is so incredibly, and and by Jane, since we're in her perspective, is, is so cruel. So cruel. And it's also interesting how, like, Rochester almost changes his, you know, he he stops describing Jane as otherworldly, right? She's now the one with a face. She's now, like, small, a girl, you know. Suddenly he's, like, very willing to be, like, regular human being, you know, (laughs) even though up to that point that had been his least, like, the narrative he was least interested in. Yeah, almost like infantilizing Jane in comparison to Bertha, right? Yeah, and like, which he had not done before. In fact, he was always insistent, even like on a class level, that Jane was his equal or more so. Right. And so then to remind the intruders slash witnesses that like Jane is blameless, innocent, infantile. Yeah. And defenseless against Bertha, <laughs> who is womanly and excessive I think that's the other Mm -hmm. thing that really came across in Rochester's description of Bertha and Jane's description is like everything about her is too excess like she's too tall she's too big her hair is too dark she's too womanly she's too strong she's too much is what it is um and then in that comparison like Jane is a girl Jane's not yet a woman Jane is innocent and doesn't know the ways of the world like you know running through even chapter 25 when he asks her it's like are you worried about the journey are you worried about like being a wife like the undercurrent of those questions to me seem to be sort of like sexual like are you worried about becoming my lover is another version of that question and it seems to me that this chapter is sort of also playing into that kind of conversation when he says, the my only conjugal hope. My only conjugal hold. Right. Um, and also that he's like owed that, you know? Mm-hmm. Like that's what it is implies. Like he is owed. And it's not like he hasn't found it, clearly, because we have Adele. Yeah. You know, he has gone outside the marriage for all of those things that he says he is owed. He has found them. So, like, it's actually, I, I think he's describing his desire for Jane as very base in order to almost perhaps further 
imply her innocence. Yes. Um, There's also something about this that, you know, once we once we get the description of Bertha, I think the racialization that has been kind of implied through all of the phrenology references, right, that I think whenever we have conversations about Bertha, unless you've read Wide Sargosa Sea, like up to the point of that book's publication, they were all sort of like feminine based, right? And like the monstrous feminine. But she's also like very racialized, right? The implication that her mother is Creole. I mean, that could mean just that she was born outside of the metropole, but it could also mean that she's of mixed race. And I think the choice of describing her as a hyena rather than, you know, something less exotic to an English reading audience, you know. Absolutely. And while they're they're constantly describing like the veins in her face, they also say she has a black face. Yes. Like this duality, this inconsistency. I think we would be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that. Absolutely. That's that seems to be actively happening in the book. Yes. To a really distressing degree, like especially the discussion of Bertha's face and its color and also her hair and like then the animal comparisons only make it worse like everything about Bertha's description and also her strength like is deeply racialized in this text um and it sucks we're gonna watch an older adaptation of Jane Eyre along with Rose Lerner And I think it'll be interesting to compare the introduction of Bertha in that adaptation to the introduction of Bertha in the 2011 version, where she's very sexy. Like, she's not tall. She's also very thin. And she's, like, very sexy in her, like, whimpering head rubs against him. It's an interesting choice. I certainly don't think there's anything sexy about Bertha. Nothing's meant to be interpreted that way in the book itself i agree like the book does not and like the book also takes pains to what do i want to say the bigamy question is Mm. not morally black and white in this text right like this text understands it as a bad choice and that the greater sin here isn't about bigamy but the fact that rochester trampled on jane's trust and i wonder if there's a version of this book that if he had just been honest with her, they could have, like, just lived in sin and, like, figured some stuff out. And, like, that would have been fun. But obviously that couldn't have been published in, in its time, so that wouldn't have happened. But, like, the book take takes pains to show us that Rochester's desire for Jane and the situation that he found himself in, while his choices weren't correct, the the underlying motivations are deeply understandable. And the book treats Rochester in this moment with a lot of compassion. Like the fact that he's not going to beat Bertha and that he's only going to wrestle with her. Although, and then, and again, back to your original question, it's like, how does this book, how is this book positioning Bertha to Jane? The fact that she's tied to a chair by a length of cord in a windowless room with only Grace Peel and one lone bulb lamp, there's nothing comforting or comfortable about where she's kept. And the book also takes pains to tell us that. And I think, 
I think that's an important choice too, because in some ways, like the lack of comforts that Bertha receives at Thornfield mirror the lack of comforts that Jane received at Lowood, and that both of them are trapped. Yes, but Bertha is trapped in a much more literal sense. Right, and constantly. And I... I wonder if the book doesn't have sensitivity to the fact that, like, she is this way because of her situation. We know now, without a shadow of a doubt, that treating a human being that way distorts their ability, you know, the coping mechanisms, the communication patterns, like, all the things that make life livable, right? Um, I just recently watched a documentary about institutionalization historical institutionalization right and people who would be put into an institution for things like masturbating would like end up doing things like clawing out their own eyes because of the way they were treated the book doesn't seem that conscientious of it of that kind of thing I think the book believes that this is Bertha's true nature and it has been revealed over the course of her marriage and I think the book also makes it, going back to the bigamy question, I think the book also believes that she's as good as dead. Yes. And so what Rochester, I think going back to the question in the last chapter, do we think he was honestly going to tell her 366 days later? Yeah, I think he thought Bertha would be dead. There is definitely a sense that this book and Rochester are waiting for this person to die. Yeah. And he just couldn't wait anymore. But I'm not sure that this book ever has, like, there's not a version of this book to me where they live in sin. Adele's mother is positioned as, because we get her description and because she's, you know, callow and a bad woman who dies, who gets death, right? I think it's shown that, like, that is an impure way of being and that the you know marital vows are actually important to legitimizing Jane and Rochester and that like Jane is too good of a person to live in sin I see that I also wonder though because like her last thing about it it isn't because she says it's not the bigamy it's the lie and I mean those things are this like they're so intertwined like he's Exactly. Like, how can you disassociate them? But it's interesting to me that, like, Jane is making that distinction. Because I think you're right. Like, if he was honest with her from the beginning where he's like, Jane, I want you. But I'm like, got this wife upstairs. Um, what do you think about hanging out on a, you know, European tour for a while? Yeah. I, I think Jane would have been like, no, I think you're right. But I think she also would have liked to have been told. I mean, I don't know. Like, yeah. they, like I, I, her broken trust is the is the break here. I do feel like there is a version of this book where she knows from the beginning, and it's just a very slow burn, and then you know, waiting for Bertha to die. But what does that give us? What is Rochester's urgency? Is it to have sex with Jane? Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, but that, but that almost goes against like everything we just talked about. I think Rochester like, wants to be comforted, right? I think you and I have done a lot of excavation of a person who has been deeply isolated. He's keeping this secret. He's like propagating rumors, like when he says to the 
to the person, he's like, you never heard of Mr. Rochester, but you thought my bastard sister was locked up here. Like, you knew someone was here. Yeah. Um, and so the fact that he's been propagating these rumors and is also isolated, he doesn't have a ton of society. Like, Rochester is... He's a sociable guy. Like, he wants to be around people on his own terms. And because of this situation, he hasn't gotten to live the way that he wants. And then Jane shows up and challenges him and talks to him about stuff that he likes. And then, you know. I think think he has been living that sociable lifestyle. Remember when he first, when we first meet him, our housekeeper says, oh, he's never home. He's always away. I don't think he's away living like a monk because we have Adele and we have that account of what it, what his life was like in Paris and that he's regularly traveling to Jamaica and he's regularly traveling uh, throughout Europe, in fact. I think he has found th- – that's the thing. Like, that's the rub. Like, it is – like, the only thing that could justify his urgency is, like, a true devotion to Jane, because he could, he has gone off and had like a life. He has lived in sin with women. For sure. You know, and he has like had a social life and he has had, you know, he has had like, that's what's frustrating is he has this woman locked up in Thornfield, right? In this terrible room. And he's created this woe is me narrative, but we know that it's not true because he's also told us about what he's been doing in the meantime. I think the book understands those pleasures as callow and shallow and bad and like unfulfilling. Like Rochester is unfulfilled by the earthly pleasures he's been seeking out these last 15 years. And so like point taken, absolutely. His uh, he doth protest too much in his situation because he's a man of means. He can have anything he wants, really. Like there are very few strictures on his. And he has. Yeah. Up to this point. So then what is it? Oh, you're right. What is the urgency around Jane? Yeah. And I think you're right to say it's comfort, but I don't think it's like comfort in having like a quote unquote normal life because I, I mean, he's marrying so far below his station. There's no way. Mm-hmm. There is no way his life would continue as it was. With this, like, low-born wife mm-hmm. who doesn't really know what she's doing. I think it's, like, it is that thing about sex where it is, like, very much, like, it can be about, like, this. What's interesting, I think, is that in this reading of Jane Eyre, I've, I've always, you know, you think about Victorians as having, like, this separation between, like, something puerile, right? Like, sexuality and something like love, something transcendent like love. But this text really cannot extricate them because you know, if love was so pure and so much about devotion and just being in each other's company, like he didn't have to marry Jane, but he does have to marry Jane. He does. He does have that urgency. And she does too. Like she super duper wants to be married to him because like there's this like almost like- there's always that like shouldering up to that idea of physicality. Right. There's like this collapse into each other. And like that scene in chapter 25 when she's talking about the riven- chestnut tree and how like it was good that you hewn together even as you're being ripped apart and that like now even though you can't like be together you'll have someone to watch you in your decay and I'm like well that's like a whole fucking metaphor for marriage I guess um but there is something in here about being recognized in all of your facets and I think like that's what this Jane urgency is where it's like he wants to have sex with her But he also wants, like, 
this companion who sees him for all the things that he is and like teases him and like not the things that he is the things that he wants himself to be that's the kicker because the thing that he is is a guy who has had many kept women while he's had a wife stashed in the attic of his giant estate right that's the other thing is like he's not home like he doesn't have to keep this massive staff like he could just set aside thornfield as like her place she could have the whole thing right yeah he could have an entire staff devoted to her management, but instead he puts her in this small attic room. A garret. With a stove and one light. And that's who he really is. And I think it's not just like he doesn't want to be seen. He wants to be someone else. Yes. Like he sees himself as trapped when like the real thing is he's trapped and imprisoned Bertha Mason. And he needs that narrative of like, I'm a tragic figure and I'm in love. And he needs the person that Jane sees him as to be real. And he knows that he can't really negotiate. My wife is this person who I have said I will be responsible for and I will take care of, right? Like I have betrayed that vow. And so he's like, well, her mom was an alcoholic and no one told me. Like that's so silly, like you drink sherry with every meal except breakfast yeah uh exactly it takes one to know one but and like <laughs> you know and i and i think that's why wide sargos to see is, is such a fascinating text because it is just like the hypocrisy of this book anyways but this isn't a podcast about that book this is a book about a podcast about jane eyre so any parting thoughts for this big deal chapter that we just read I want to remind readers of um, Jane's interior exterior move here because when she like she's gone through all the motions of this pretty turbulent half hour and she like <laughs> locks herself in her room and she finally has time to just like think through everything. And it reminded me a lot of the scene where she sees Blanche and decides to do like a miniature painting of how beautiful Blanche is and then she does the miniature of herself as like plain and stupid. Well it's before she sees Blanche. Right. She's only heard Blanche described. And so she like makes this beautiful miniature of this person then she makes the miniature of herself and like makes this makes her feelings external so that she can get her arms around them. And this idea that she feels the flood like almost in the back of her mind like she feels it corporeally this flood of emotion and that she knows it's going to come and that she keeps reminding us that she hasn't cried yet and that this flood of emotion is coming for her and she's just going to drown in it and right now she's lying in the dry riverbed but she feels the water break above her what a beautiful way to describe being overcome by emotion and like what that feeling is to like go on like autopilot and then finally have time to process like this is such a beautiful examination in the 1840s of what it is to have to like to be forced to process your emotions and like to process them violently and like I can't believe how good it is (laughs) yeah yeah well true hero I think for me is Dickie Dickie uh who was shored up by his friendship with Mr. Eyre, yeah. I think, to do the right thing. and uh, For everybody. For everybody. And also remains a very cute boy. <laughs> and I think 
And I think we need to remember that other hero, Bertha Mason. You know, I don't think the book feels this way. Well, maybe the book feels this way. I think Bertha is trying to protect Jane from what's about to happen. Like, whenever she discovers Jane in the house, she doesn't attack Jane. She attacks Rochester, like tearing the veil. And she doesn't hurt Jane physically. She just frightens her. I do believe Bertha sees a kindred spirit in some ways. And I think Bertha wants to save Jane from Rochester and what's happened to her. And I don't know if that exists in the text consciousness, but you cannot deny the fact that he is the locus of all of her hate and violence. You bring up an excellent point. She never goes after any other staff. She doesn't attack her jailer, Grace Poole. She doesn't attack Mrs. Uh, Fairfax. She doesn't ever go after Adele or Sophie. It is entirely about Rochester, always. Um, that's a really, really good point. I think you're right. I think she is trying to warn Jane. And like the fact that we had two very scary dreams and then the visitation of Bertha and like they're all of a piece and all of them are about Rochester sucks. Women helping women. Right. Well, uh, nothing more for me. It's perfect. Let's get the fuck out of Thornfield. Yeah, get the, get out, get out. With that, loosen your James. But never your heirs. Mwah. Mwah.